Hello and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we carefully dissect the movie Alien one minute at a time. I'm John Ingle. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at Minute 88, which begins with Ripley saying something about blowing up the ship and ends with Ripley ordering Lambert and Parker to get all the coolant they can carry. And once again, we're joined by actor Ian McNeese. Hello, Ian. Hello, and thank you for having me. I wanted to ask you before we jump into the minute, um, you've worked with a couple of the other cast members, right? Have you worked with John Hurt? Uh, no, I've not worked with John Hurd. In fact, I, I, I met him recently uh, at a convention. Uh, he appeared like I did in Doctor Who, and so we were both uh, in Los Angeles at a convention there, and I sort of met him and had a chat with him there. A terrific guy. I'd always been a huge fan of his work ever since um, that extraordinary movie that he did, um, you know, The Drugs Bust. Um, oh, yeah, Midnight Express? Yeah. Oh, unbelievable, yeah. Which I believe is another, it is, isn't it? It's Alan Parker. Oh, there we got that wrong. There but you close, you know. And you can see him if you look back in that m- movie um, in the airport. He appears there. Oh, he's really? Actually, in the shot at one. Yeah, he's in the shot at one point. Wow! Yeah, in the crowd, in the crowd. Yeah, no, no. So, so, so I w- not not work with him, but I did work on a movie called A Lifeless Ordinary with Mr. Holm, who was very quiet. I have to say. Uh, I mean, I was ex- expecting him to be a lot more animated than he was, but. He was there with his wife, kept to himself very much, and uh, was was extremely very good on the set, obviously. But uh, um, not much to say when uh, you had him on a, um, a local basis. But um, but but a great actor. Uh, just from the lack of interviews and information out there, it's hard to find uh, a lot of information on his motivations and performances and so on. Things that you might find on a commentary on a on a DVD or Blu-ray or anything like that. One of the yeah. things that we've had to do with this uh, when discussing his performances is speculate a lot because it seems as though sometimes he's improv- improvising a lot. It seems as though, you know, these different motivations could be going taking place in different scenes, but you don't know because you don't hear him say anything anywhere about it. And uh, maybe that's just his nature. Maybe he's just he's there to do the job and he's a quiet guy and he keeps to himself and he doesn't need to to talk about all that. Yeah. Um, in fact, I played his. Uh... His valet, who turned out to be a henchman, who turned out to be a um, um, a hitman for him as well. Um, so, so it was a it was a great job and um, and interesting too. Did you guys rehearse a lot? Does Danny Boyle rehearse, or is he just yeah? Yes, in? Danny Boyle is he's a theater based actor, a, a theater based director. So he's um he's done a lot of theater work, and, and what you find is that he'll rehearse as much as you want to do. And, and most actors will love rehearsing. So we rehearsed a lot. So there's never any fear of uh, doing something in a rehearsal and then getting in front of the camera and not having that happen again? Oh, spontaneity? No, no, I don't think so. But um, when, you, um, when you've when got a rehearsal shot where someone has to swim in a swimming pool and get out and walk around it and then shoot an apple off your head, which is what happens right at the beginning of the movie... Cameron Diaz has got to swim in the swimming pool, and we did this more than 10 times. And believe me, it was one of the happiest times I've ever had in making a movie, watching her get out of a, watching her get out of a swimming pool and walk around and then pick up a silver, silver revolver and then shoot an apple off my head, which is what she did. You got a tough so, job. Uh, tough job. I'm thinking that day I thought to myself, you know, this really isn't, you know, I mean, I would do this for free. I really would, you know, because this is a this is a treat beyond all measures, absolutely. Well, as we jump into this minute, I wanted to mention that our beloved Dippy Bird is visible way back in the background behind the 
the robot body. Maybe the last time we see one. I think it's the last Dippy Bird for sure. It's a nice time. I, I wonder if it survives the uh, inferno, the ensuing inferno here. Maybe the while they were putting the last note, you know, hitting the last note for Ash, they were hitting the last note for the Dippy Birds too. Like because, you know, there was a cut where the Dippy Bird dipped down and hit the water just before the Nostromo That's blew right, up, yeah. and they thankfully cut that out. But speaking of movie magic... There is never a flame coming out of Parker's flamethrower. Right. Ever. Right. And when this torching happens, he raises the gun and then they cut to the single and flame blasts in from out of frame and fries the head. But I wonder whether after Tom Skerritt walking around with that flamethrower with all the flame coming out of it and later uh, Ripley does too, maybe they just decided that... uh, Parker didn't need to have a lit flamethrower. <laughs> Does he ever? Did he ever? He did he have one earlier when Dallas was in the? Because maybe Yafet Koto. This is this was in his you know one of the writers in his contract. <laughs> I, will I only not. get this close to flame. Could be because do he doesn't. I don't think he ever has any flame coming out of his flamethrower. Certainly I not mean, in these next few minutes. He doesn't. Pyrotechnics is that's a very complicated thing on a day of a shoot. You know that's something that you've got to really be ready for. And we've talked about the sp- the somewhat spontaneous nature of this scene in general. Maybe they just weren't equipped to do a big pyrotechnic shot on the day that they had everybody in the room and they were doing. So maybe they said, it doesn't matter. It's okay. Nobody's ever going to watch this movie a minute at a time and talk about it. So we can just do a, you know this cut where he doesn't have a flame and then we'll have massive flames coming out. Uh, is that in that draft of the script that you have? Does he flame through? No, he doesn't. They, just, un- they just unplug it. It does end up being in the, it's in the illustrated story. I'm always wondering where they got their information for the illustrated story, as it seems to be coming more from drafts of the script than it did the final film. But it is an idea that they had at some point where it ended up in the comic book. So, um, but yeah, talking about this, this is going to be one of those times where I got to go negative a little bit on Alien, because I don't dislike the idea of, of Parker torching Ash. I like it. It's a nice moment. Um, Maybe Ripley could have done it. I don't know. I'm not sure why Parker's the one that gets this moment with Ash uh, to, to put him out, you know, in such a hateful in a way. I would think Ripley might be, have more motivation to do that. Uh, maybe it's because he represents the company to Parker or something. But uh, the effects here, it's not really the effects as much as the editing here. I have always had a big problem with how long they hold on Ash as he's burning. And there's a point where it's believable it's it's believable up to a certain point and once that skin melts away and we get that mannequin head underneath it's so it loses me every time it makes no sense there's no orbital cavities there's no nasal cavities or none of the things that he would have to have and it would have been a simple cut like why not just cut just a little bit sooner wouldn't have lost a thing it's still there it's still there in the director's cut too i would have thought that they would have gone hmm, maybe that's just something we should snip out but i don't know do you guys feel that way about that moment I don't know. It's a bad mannequin, but I never really thought about it. I just always thought, well, he's a robot, so maybe, you know, that's what its skull looks like. But you're right. There's no cavities. There's no nose. There's no right. eyes. I don't know. I've never I mean, really the, thought about it, but the, until, until the guy you've... drinks milk, he has to open his mouth. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's At the very least, you could argue that the eyes are some sort of surface, you know, mm-hmm. uh, some technology that we don't know about. He doesn't have to breathe, so maybe, I mean, we see nasal cavities, yeah. the whole, you know. But the mouth part, that's got to work. That's got to be something that I can believe. There should have been a mandible so or something. it should have lolled open, right? Just going to go, blah, and the mouth opens up as he's being torn. Yeah, I mean, you, you could, about that. it literally could have been like a, a, a 
what a t- crash test dummy that has a mandible, right? That's something that yes. so you can touch the or you can test the uh, how much damage would be done to a jawbone or something, something really simple like that. I get it. The budget's showing here. I'm yeah, not. He said it cost about two hundred bucks to do the <laughs> to do right. the heads. So. I got nothing against the effects crew here. It's the decision to hold long enough that we see the bad effect. That's the problem. There's a lot of simple solutions around this whole head scene that I think uh, I'm kind of surprised they didn't do something about once they went in to do a director's cut, but maybe that's not what they were doing the director's cut for. I wonder if the reason that Parker gets to torch him is because it really is the last heroic thing that Parker gets to do. I mean, the the next efforts he makes do not turn out in his favor. So this is like his last win for as a character. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, I'll ask you the question here because originally um, Parker had a little bit more of a chance to be a hero once we get it's beyond your minutes here. But once the alien confronts Parker and Lambert, originally Parker was going to have much more of a fighting chance uh, to d- deal with the alien, but they cut that out. Now, do you think an actor like Yafet Kahado would have said, come on now, this can't be it for me. Can I get something else? And maybe this was a moment that they wrote in. <laughs> to I think you're dead right. Absolutely. I'd have done that myself. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't leave me hanging here. Let me do it. And he's the last one to go. You know, it's easy to turn around. They've all gone. It's his moment. It's definitely his moment. Do you find ever there's opportunities where you suggest or fight for something in terms of how your yes. character goes out? Absolutely. Yeah, there, there are ways. To, and, and, and whether they take it or whether they not, it's a 50-50 chance. It's really, but I mean, I will suggest things and suggest things and suggest things till they're bored in the base. And I always say, look, you can take it or you're not. I have these ideas, uh, you know, and there are some directors who like it, some directors who don't, and, and, and that's the way it goes. But I will always suggest things about the way that you can do stuff or the way that my character would go, or, and it's up to them whether they roll with it or not, really. Well, continuing on into the minute, we move out of this burning inferno into these corridors, and I heard on the commentary track that... Ridley Scott said he got bored with the corridors, and so he wanted them to look slightly different, and he had them painted a darker shade, and then he went around with a can of gold spray paint and added just little touches of gold. I mention this only because it's something that I had never seen before until I heard that on the commentary, and then I started looking at the walls, and they are, damned if they're darker, and there's these little flecks of gold in the design, so... There's one more hands-on well, director move. Well, it's in a, that's interesting because we've talked about in the earlier scenes how the ship, you know, originally uh, seems like a submarine slash spaceship slash freighter, something that we can recognize um, as something maybe from Earth that we can relate to a little bit. And then once we start to move into the quote-unquote alien territory of dealing with this menace on the ship, they start to move into areas of the ship that are more alien-looking. Uh, particularly when Brett wanders into that uh, landing claw room and into the other room. It's very gold. Gold seems to be the idea, I guess, in Ridley Scott's mind of, you know, as things as things progress in the film, visually they'll need to progress, and gold seemed to be his chosen color there. I'd, do you have any speculation as to why gold would be the choice? I don't know. I don't know. Except that maybe he was thinking back to the other room that did have the gold in it already, mm-hmm. and it just sort of organically evolved, mm-hmm. but... It is really beautiful. Even when she steps inside the shuttle, you can see these tiny flecks of gold on the mm-hmm. on the walls behind her. It's 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 one more thing that makes the movie unusual and interesting. You know those things that aren't totally explained. Mm-hmm. One more of those things that probably 
had an effect on us as viewers for a long time, but wouldn't come out unless you heard the commentary or you listened to a podcast that delved so deeply into the movie. So much about filmmaking that we don't notice. You know, there's these subtle touches that change things for us, and we can stay invested in the story and the characters without really worrying about all that up until we've seen the movie a hundred times and we want to talk about it more in depth. Ian, I know you've done some green screen things on Dune, so you've been in an environment that that isn't a real environment. And then I know you've done things like, didn't they build some big compound for no escape? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But that was not, not green screen at all. That was, that was right out there. They, uh, it was amazing. I mean, uh, Monty Campbell flew over, um, uh, rainforest in New Zealand and literally said, that's where I want to build the camp. And that's where they built it. This extraordinary camp, which was a prison, really. The detail that went into it was extraordinary. I mean, it was a proper camp with, uh, crops growing in it and stuff like that and the hospital and, and all sorts of other stuff. It was incredible. That's, uh, that must be easier for an actor, right? Oh, a lot, a lot easier because you can get lost in that and enjoy it and be part of it. No, the hard, the hard graft is the green screen and that is a dune certainly had on Ace Ventura too. Those, uh, you, you look at the beginning of the, um, movie, you see Fulton Greenwell walking up, uh, uh, the, the side of a cliff, a mountain, with all these steps leading to um, the monks at the top in that little dome. Uh, and, uh, and they go on forever. And in fact, that's a green screen. You've got me climbing up a little section of steps, which they then plant in there. But uh, it's it's um, certainly on Dune and stuff like that, where you are literally, you've got, an, uh, you've got a director, you know, saying, can I talk you through this? Uh, uh, and he just gives you, an idea of what you're meant to be, especially with close-ups. It's like, it's it's tough because she's explaining what's going on, which is not happening at all. And you've just got to give a reaction to it. It's it's not the easiest thing in the world. I remember you telling me that when you were working with Roman Polanski, he was actually acting opposite of you rather than, I guess there was supposed to have been a kid there or something, right? And the kid, they didn't. Oh, that was, that was sweet. Yeah. In fact, um, because of the laws with children, they can only work um, certain hours. So when they wrap, they wrap, you can't have them back again. And he just wanted to move the thing along. So he had a um, he had a shot with me where I was talking to the boy. Uh, so the camera was facing me. It was on me. And he was right up against the camera. And he said, do you mind if I be the boy? And I said, I'd be delighted. And he's about three foot two anyway. <laughs> And so I'm looking down at this little boy, and believe you or not, I mean, he's he's such a consummate actor anyway, uh, because he's been an actor all his life. But but there he is. Damn me if he didn't know all the lines of the boy. He knew them word for word. And he acted them with me while they shot on me, and he was a little boy, and it was superb. It was perfect. It was it was it was great. Uh, no, no, he was he was such a I was knocked out with him. Unlike Milos Bowman, who turned out to be an absolute bastard of an act director with yelling and screaming and <laughs> uh, and just just phenomenally uh, aggressive as a director. The reverse happened with um, someone like Blansky, who loves actors, loves being around them, and, and, and gave us all our space and was such a, just a joy to work with. So yeah, no, he was a joy. So John, I got a question for you. Sure. What's up with this coolant stuff? Is there no air conditioning in the shuttle? They're running around grabbing cans of coolant. Okay, so I think coolant, in what we know from the script, we would have gotten a lot more exposition about coolant had some of the versions of the script been uh, stuck to a little bit closer. But um, I think engines need coolant. I think in this case, they're talking about 
they're going to be flying through space for a really long time. Maybe they need some coolant. But the truth is, this just needed to happen in the story. They just needed to be split up for some reason. And I think coolant, eh, what, what, what could we do? Ah, coolant. Have them go get coolant. So that's what happened here. Because damn it, if it wasn't for that damn coolant, I think they'd have been fine. I think they could have just all gone to the shuttle. I mean, at this point, when we're talking about where the alien is on the ship, at this point, the alien's not anywhere near the shuttle. If they could have just made a beeline to the shuttle right now and taken off, all would be fine. If it wasn't for that damn coolant. Coolant. The coolant. Uh, really, coolant terrible. is their undoing. But uh, sadly, it's. I think it is just a writing a writer's device. I think they just needed something. And they needed something to clank and bang around. So it's a pretty good idea, I guess. You won't need a rocket to fly through space. No. Nope. But you need coolant to put into the shuttle. <laughs> well, anything else for this minute? I'm done. Ian? No, nope, I'm good. Uh, Ian, tell the folks where they can find you on the Twitter. Oh, they can find me on Twitter on Ian, I-A-N, McNeese, M-C-N-E-I-C-E. Uh, 1950-1950. You can find us at AlienMinute.com. You could follow us at AlienMinutePod on Twitter or AlienMinutePodcast on Instagram. You can uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play if you haven't already. And we'd love a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us out a lot. Also, we have some t-shirts uh, at our Tee Public page. You can uh, check us out over there. Maybe buy a t-shirt or a mug or something. we got a new logo, too. we got a new logo, yeah. From one of the listeners. From one of the listeners. And you know what? In the next minute, I'll give you that listener's Twitter handle, because that's all he asked in return for this logo. So well, I don't have it handy right now, but I'll get it before the next minute. So well, We will do that, then. All right. Well, so, uh, we'll see you tomorrow for minute number 89.